Okay, guys, um, let, let me, let me um, get a run and start here by telling you wh- how this happened. That is, what, um, what we're going to look at tonight. How, why are we doing this? Um, on October the 6th, I think, or the 8th, it was, a, it was a Tuesday, we had a staff meeting here at Gracie Van, and um, our staff meetings are wonderfully fun. Um, really, I mean, they're so enjoyable. Uh, um, every time we get together, I, 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 think, I think every staff member would tell you that. They're just, they're just healthy, fun times. But uh, one of the subjects that came up was this. Uh, we had seen recently a 23-year-old woman come to know Christ. We had also seen a 56-year-old man come to know Christ in the same time frame, in the last six weeks. And uh, the question was posed, um, what will the path that these two people are on look like as they move towards spiritual maturity? Will it be the same? Will it look alike? And we concluded, no, it will not look like the same path that these two people are on. Um, but then we asked, okay, if it's a different path, what are some marks what are some characteristics that would be true about every maturation process? Of, 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 of No matter how old you are, no matter what your gender, what, what would the characteristics, what would some of the things that are be common to, to every person as they, as they stride forward in uh, maturity in Christ? Well, in that whole uh, hour and a half discussion, we only came up with one. And, but we're going to work on some more. But we came up with this one that there would be an increasing love for and interest in uh, private and public worship. That is, if you're 23 or, or 56, it matters not. There will be an increasing love for and interest in private and public worship. Then the conversation really turned sour because they, they started jumping me. They rebuked me viciously, maliciously, saying, you know, Jimmy, you don't address that issue frequently enough. And um, oh, there was a couple of comments made about, uh, I mean, Bill Seeley made one uh, about, uh, uh, anyway, the, the, the point is, I mean, he was, he was horribly cruel. But um, um, I decided then that they were right, that this issue needs to come back up again. And, and maybe on a regular basis, I don't know how regularly, but it has to do with the, the key component in a soul's development. Whether you're male or female, uh, you know, a teenager or an octogenarian, the, the key, we'll say, we're going to call it a skill, but that's not a very good word. The key skill, the key art, the key function of the development of the soul is your own personal individual encounters with God in His Word. You cannot build your soul on my sermons, as wonderful as they all are. I, I said that Sunday, guys, and I mean that. Um, it, it, the soul is going to, going to develop as you, as, you, as you meet with God on your own. And so, as a result of that conversation, I determined, okay, we're going to go back to this issue, and we're going to look at it again. Because it is the key... Activity, discipline, function of a believer in their pursuit of Christian maturity. Okay? Just how do I meet with God in this book? And what things can I know that would help me in, in doing that? Now, guys, you know me. Uh, I'm not going to just jump to the how-tos right away. We'll get to the how-tos, and maybe we'll get them to them tonight. Maybe we'll get to them next week. I don't know how long this is going to take. 
but um, we're, we're going to lay some foundations before we do anything, and then we'll we'll get to the how tos and the uh, the ABCs and all that business. They're in here, um, but uh, you're going to either have to stay tuned tonight or maybe next week. We'll just see how fast it goes. I say again that the key function, the key discipline, the key um, activity of the soul is a personal encounter with God, your own individual private encounter with God through His Word. I am not the only one who believes that, ladies and gentlemen. Can I read you a couple of things? This one, um, I, I think you I've read this before, but um, it's a paragraph. Stay with me. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in the contemplation of the divinity, God. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with. In them, we feel a kind of self-content, and we go our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth, and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild ass's colt, and with solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. That was preached by a 20-year-old man in 1855 whose name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. A 20-year-old man said something like that, ladies and gentlemen. No, no, no subject of contemplation will tend to more humble the mind than thoughts of God. So we wrestle with humility. I got a suggestion for you. Um, this is another one. This is, uh, this comes out of J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. Um, just another paragraph. He says, question, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. This is eternal life that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him glorieth, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. What of all the states God ever sees man in <coughs> gives him more pleasure, gives him most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. I desire the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings, says God. Guys, um, the key function, the, 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 the component that will, that, that will most and most quickly develop the soul is an expanding knowledge. Not just knowledge about, but knowledge of God. Now, guys, that, that, that can indeed be dangerous. Um, because, as you know, knowledge puffs up. But understand this, that the knowledge that I'm talking about is the knowledge that ultimately reflects itself in greater and greater obedience. If you want to know whether you got the right knowledge, do you find yourself, uh, do you find in yourself a growing interest in obeying the God that you love? If, if, if your knowledge is not producing that, then it's not producing the right thing. And uh, you're on the verge of, Oh, I don't know, a lot of bad things, but one of them uh, being misusing what you know. Guys, we are not, we don't hold Bible studies around here so that we can stuff your head with more information and more facts. How many gallons of salt water are in the Dead Sea? 
Who cares? What we want you to know is the loves, the hates, the interests, the passions, the rules, the commandments of the God that made you and found a way to save you in Christ Jesus. Knowing that God. Now, how do you do that? Does he, does he come to you in the night and give you sweet spiritual dreams? Does he tickle your toes? Does he come through your fingertips? No, ladies and gentlemen. We get to know this God through wrestling with him in this book. It starts with the mind, it grabs hold of the heart, and issues forth in the will. <laughs> so, that, that's what this is all about, because we believe, as a staff, that the most fundamental thing that we can teach you is how to have more profitable times by yourself, with God and his word. Okay? That's, that that's, explains what we're up to. So let me show you a few things, and we'll bounce around a little bit in the scriptures, but uh, let's start in Psalm 56. Um, let me show you what the psalmist does. He does it several times. I can show you three. Um, but in Psalm 56, uh, verses 3 and 4, first, he says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid what can flesh do to me. Do you see what the psalmist has done right there, ladies and gentlemen? He says, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. I put my trust in your word. <laughs> do you see what the psalmist has done? The psalmist has almost equated God and his word. When I get afraid, I run to you, God, and I run in, in God whose word I praise. Verse 10. In God whose word I praise in the Lord, whose word I praise in God I trust. So you see what is going on in the mind of the psalmist. He says that in in, in periods of my life where I find myself most fearful, I race to God. How do I do that? I grab a hold of his word. Um, I'll show it to you again. How about Psalm 130? Um... Psalm 130 at verse 5. This is in verse 5. Uh, he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits in his word. I hope. O Lord, hope in the Lord. Verse 7. <coughs> o, o Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. Now, what I'm trying to show you is, in verse 5 he says, I trust, I hope in his word. In verse 7 he says, I hope in the Lord. Because in the mind of the psalmist, those are the same thing. Do you see that? To hope in the Lord is to hope in His Word or the descriptions of the Lord in His Word. How do I find something out about this God that I want to hope in? How do I find out something about this God that I want to trust in my, my scariest moments? I, I, I immerse myself in what He said in this book. Um, and that's Psalm 138. Uh, the psalmist says again in, in verse 2, he says, I bow down towards your holy temple um, and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love. Um, yes, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. You see that? You know when, when the scriptures talk about his name, this is a reference to the, the fullness of his character. You have exalted the fullness of your character and your word. And... Um, I bow down towards you and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love, for you've exalted these things. The things that, that, that the psalmist delighted in. 
um, go back to Psalm 1, um, which I preached, oh, a year ago. But um, notice the description of the man who is the object of all of God's blessing. This is in Psalm 1. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And he meditates, and on his law, he meditates day and night. Who is the man who is the peculiar object of God's greatest display of kindness? It's a man, and by the way, the, the, the word law is, a, is, a, is just a synonym for, I mean, he, he, they use all kinds of words like testimony and statutes and commandments and law. Word, they're, they're, all, they're all synonyms. Um, you know, guys, um, is it possible to love the Bible too much? Well, I suppose it is. It's called bibliolatry. If you've ever, I mean, maybe there are those who worship the Bible. Uh, but I've never met one of those people. I've never met anyone yet who loves this book too much, including myself. You've never heard me say, like the psalmist says um, in Psalm 119.97, he says, Oh, how I love your law. Verse 36, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. You ever said that? You ever felt that? You ever meant that? So my, so my point is, guys, um, the charge of being a bibliolatrist is foolishness. Now, I don't love the book. I love the God who's described in the book. But my friends, there is no um, there is no substitute for knowledge of God through His Word. Gang, having said all of that, the Protestant Reformation, of which you are the result had one of it as one of its slogans, one of its clarion calls. This thing is sola scriptura. That's who we are. Scripture alone. Sola scriptura. And I'll tell you this, ladies and gentlemen, the Roman Catholics don't like that statement. The Roman Catholic Church denied Sola Scriptura in the Council of Trent. Uh, one of their key theological statements found in the Council of Trent said that, that, that the Bible is not authoritative, that the most authoritative agency is the church, and the church gives this book authority as opposed to this book giving the church authority. The Reformers said, no. The only grounds of our hope, the only grounds of our confidence, the only grounds of truth is sola scriptura. So, ladies and gentlemen, um, the, the, the project in front of us is a, um, is a massive one, but our souls depend on it. I, I read this to you. Um, uh, I read it in that, that um, Spurgeon quote. But this is John 17, 3. He says, and Jesus is speaking, and he says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Guys, do you know anything about the book of Hosea? You remember, you remember ever reading the book of Hosea? 
Well, when Hosea, he's the one that's told to marry Gomer, you know, the prostitute. And, and anybody that would marry a woman by the name of Gomer is just asking for trouble. But um, um, when he finally gets, you know, he buys her off a, a, an auction block as a slave. And it's a, it's a, it's a compelling book. But ultimately, when he gets ready to, to start developing his message, he starts in chapter 4 and he says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. The Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Hosea steps forward and says, Yahweh has a controversy with the people of this land. The, 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 the prosecuting attorney steps forward and says, Here's my case against guilty Israel. You want to know what his case is? There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. The case that Yahweh, Yahweh has against Israel is that there is no knowledge of God in the land. Ladies and gentlemen, I sometimes feel like, like the Apostle Paul uh, in, um, and is it, uh, it's Acts 17, isn't it? Yes, Acts 17. When uh, Paul is uh, walking down the streets of Athens and he's seeing all the gods, got a God to fertility and a God of military might and a God of the harvest and a God of, of uh, marriage. And, and at the end of the, the road there, they had, a, they had a, one more statue and it was to the, the statue of the unknown God. It was like, uh, I mean, Athens was trying to cover all their exits. They had gods for everything, and, but in, just in case they missed one, they put another one at the end, the unknown God, so that they, you know, could cover their, all their exits. And then so Paul comes into the Athens and he says, the God that you worship in ignorance, I say unto you, let me tell you about him. Sometimes I hear people talk about this God and I want to say, who, who are you talking about? Because the God that you just described doesn't even exist. Where did you get him? Because that's a concoction of your own imagination. The case of Yahweh against Israel is that there's no knowledge of God in the land, ladies and gentlemen. Because we have neglected this prized piece of revelation of God himself. So, my soul is dependent upon my dealings with God as he comes to life through this book. Now, let me tell you a, a few things about the book. Uh, and and uh, this, is, this is second, and this is common knowledge to most, uh, most of you, but for those of you it isn't this, you, might, you need to hear it. First of all, we say that the book is inspired. The, um, the Greek word um, is that one, penustas, uh, penus, yeah, that's it. Um, and and uh, when we say inspired, we, uh, we, that's really the wrong word. The better word is expired because it's God breathed. God exhaled and the result of it was that book. Second Timothy, um, 3.16 says that all scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. That's the text on which this is based. So we believe that the book is inspired. Now, if you've got problems with that, guys, come see me. You know, my, my great joy is to help you work through to a confidence in that book. I went to seminary <coughs> um, at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, and the logo of the seminary was, Thy Word is Truth. The one thing, or one of the things that I feel comfortable in, in defending is the, is the inspiration, the inerrancy. Uh, that means there's no errors in it that, are, uh, descri that describes that book. So if that's a struggle with you, I understand. It's okay. It's not the end of the world. You can work through that. 
We can, we can show you why you can and should put your confidence in that book. But there's another word. <laughs> Bet you never heard of that one, have you? Perspicuity. It means that the Bible is clear. Now, guys, that's where you'll fight me. (laughs) What do you mean the Bible is clear? I don't understand the thing. I understand that. Gang, um, what this word is meaning is simply that the Bible is not too hard for you to understand. If you can understand the morning newspaper, you can understand this book. But that is not to say that there are not some parts of it that are harder than others. Yes, there, that, that's certainly true. You may need some help in, um, in, in understanding this book, like I do. But one of the things that God has done, is, and, and because he's delivered this book, is that he's also granted to the church the gift of teaching, which is designed to help you understand this book. But based on this conviction, the Reformers came up with another clarion call, ladies and gentlemen, and that is the right to private interpretation. You should not be, nor would we ever want you to be, dependent upon me for the the interpretation of this book. Now, I might be able to help, but I can be wrong. (laughs) <laughs> it doesn't happen very often, but uh, uh, <clears throat> but 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 my my point is, the Roman Catholic Church when the when the Protestant Reformation was launched, the Roman Catholic Church said, "You keep your hands off that book. We'll tell you what it says." And the reformers said, "No, get this book in the language of the people." And that's when Martin Martin Luther translated it into German. That was scandalous in the time, ladies and gentlemen, putting a book in the language of the people. Because they believed in the right of private interpretation. Rome, again, opposes such a notion. But may I say to you guys, with that great freedom comes a great responsibility of accurate interpretation. Ladies and gentlemen, the question is not whether you're going to be a theologian. The question is, whether you're going to be a good theologian or a bad theologian. Because you've got views of who God is and what He's like. It's not a question of whether you're a theologian. You are. Where you sit. question is, are you a good theologian? That's, uh, that is more debatable. For instance, guys, do you understand that when you were in a Bible study, this, this, I mean, I, I lead a grace group, and I feel sorry for the people who are in my grace group because I, I don't do it very well. I'm very poor at it because I just keep wanting to lecture. And, you know, it's supposed to be this, this discussion. But one of my, just to, just to you know, in my, word in my favor for a moment, guys, have you ever been to a Bible study where, where people sit and they say, well, this is what I think it means? And the, and the person across the room says, well, I think it means this. The other person on the other side says, well, no, no, for me, did you, did you think of it? I think it means this. Now, that's not bad. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that's where it's left, that's wrong. Because somebody has got to step forward and say, it means this. Thus saith the Lord. 
This, this notion that we're all right, that's the problem. Not that you have private interpretation. No, no, no. But what you have to figure out is, what does it say? Because there's only one correct interpretation. And one of my heroes is a guy by the name of Calvin. And Calvin said, no man is ever over 70% right. So, I mean, we all recognize that none of us have got the corner on the market. But you've got to understand that all of that ng 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 stuff, somebody's got to say, well, that's nice. I appreciate all the contribution. But let me tell you what it says. Let me tell you what it means. Somebody's got to do that. Now, you might find out that's wrong later on. But there's only one correct interpretation. Now, guys, um, that, that's all somewhat foundational. Let me tell you some things about, um, this is another good word for you, hermeneutics. <clears throat> Comes from the, um, the Greek word Hermes. He was the god, he was the, uh, he was the messenger god, Hermes was. Hermeneutics is, the, is uh, the rules of, principles of interpretation. So when you're studying your Bibles, guys, you got to keep some of this in. You got, I got 12 points here, I think, uh, nine points. You got to keep some of this in mind while you're interpreting your Bibles. So <clears throat> if you've been asleep up till now, it's time to listen to this stuff. Because, guys, one of the reasons that there's no knowledge of God in the land is because people aren't observing rules of hermeneutics. Number one. It's called the analogy of faith. That's a big word that simply means Scripture is its own best interpreter. That is, if there is a dark, I mean, an unclear passage, not dark, an, un, an unclear passage, the best way to understand that passage is to find other passages that will shed a light on it. That's called the analogy of faith. The best interpreter of Scripture is, or Scripture is its own best interpreter. I had supper one night with John MacArthur. And I found this absolutely convicting. He said that from the pulpit, he never uses an illustration other than a story that comes out of the Bible. I couldn't believe that. I mean, I use stories all the time. You know, I told you about the woman in the grocery store line, you know, um, this past Sunday. But he would never use something like that. If the story doesn't come out of here to illustrate the point. <clears throat> but I think his intent is to observe that rule of hermeneutics. Okay? So that's that's rule number one. Rule number two. You understand the scriptures literally where possible. <laughs> now, guys, that, um, that uh, I can get kind of testy, you know? We believe that this is the word of God in all of its beauty. But this book contains all various genres of, of, of literature. We, we approach it to um, um, understand it literally. But we come to passages that we simply cannot commit intellectual suicide. Give you an example. 
Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, <coughs> pardon me, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, tell me, ladies and gentlemen, do you think that God is going to put a chain around Satan's neck? You think he's going to put him in a jail cell and, and turn a key and lock the door? That's what's said here. But ladies and gentlemen, do you think that Satan is going to be bound so that he can't trouble us anymore? Yes, and that's the intent of the passage. But it's not for you to run away drawing pictures of the devil with a chain around his neck. You're making us look like idiots. In all of those apocryphal conferences that you went to to interpret all the last days with all these keys and all they laugh at us ladies and gentlemen they laugh at us you know very frankly could i just um, this is an ugly dig an ugly dig um it really has nothing to do but i'm going to dig it anyway those left behind books by tim lahay tim lahay's a dear brother and a somebody that we're going to share heaven with but I'm telling you, those books were not much better than a Dell comic book. And we read them rapaciously. I don't know why. Because, they're, I mean, it's, it's an error of hermeneutics that you find almost on every page. Okay, third. <clears throat> Guys, here's something. <laughs> you, this is going to be new. The Bible sometimes speaks in hyperbole. Can I give you an example? Um, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Matthew says this, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues. How do you understand that? I mean, ladies and gentlemen, do you think that no disease existed in Palestine after, while Jesus was here? Sorry. But I could say something like this. I could say Jesus went everywhere. And he healed all kinds of diseases. Because that's the intent of the text. To, to make it say something beyond that is to, is to box yourself into, into a corner that would mean that your interpretations are going to be skewed. And, um, and you're going to miss the mark on, on several occasions. Uh, we'll do the rest of this and we'll quit. <clears throat> the Bible also, this is number four, also uses anthropomorphic language. That's a good one that I brought all the way from Jackson, Mississippi. Anthropomorphic Language. The Bible uses that kind of language. Uh, for instance, um, Psalm 91 talks about God going to hide us under the, the shadow of his wings. Do you think that God has wings? Do you think that God is a chicken? Do you think that, um, I mean, he that keepeth Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. Do you think that he sleeps? Do you think he takes a little nap in the afternoons? Ladies and gentlemen, um, it, when, the, when, the, when God gets ready... To expose himself to me, he has to make certain condescensions to do so. That is, he has got to condescend to get something across to me because I'm so limited and sinful. So when he wants to tell me about his being able to see my sin, 
What does he use? He uses a figure like this. The eyes of God move everywhere. Dude, does God have eyes? No! God is spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But can God see? Yes! That's anthropomorphic language. Anthropos, man, morphe, man-like. The Bible uses language like that because it's trying to reach people like us. And we're so limited that we can't understand things, so they put it in language that you and I can understand. Um, Fifth, there are words in the Bible that have multiple meanings. There are... John chapter 1, verse 10. Um, He was in the world... And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. In that one verse, you find the Greek word cosmos three times. And it means something different. It means at least two things in John 1.10. And maybe three. Guys, words have different meanings. And so the thing that's going to help you is the context in which you find yourself. That's all in one verse. One word repeated three times in the same verse. So playing fast and loose is um, it can get you in trouble interpretively. Um, sixth, watch out for parables, ladies and gentlemen. Don't you love parables? In fact, I've been praying about what I was going to preach after this "Thus saith the Lord" thing, and I, I thought about parables at once, and I thought, no, that's not, that's just going <clears> to <throat> guys. Parables normally have one meaning. Search for the one meaning of the parable. The parable of the prodigal son. Um, it essentially has one meaning until it turns the corner and talks to you about the elder son or the eldest elder brother, and then it goes off in another direction. But here's what happens. You've got the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son gets home from the, the, the faraway country, and the father gives him new sandals and gives him a signet ring. And people spend days trying to figure out what the new sandals and the signet ring are all about. You're wasting your time. It's trying to tell you that the Father receives sinners. And He delights in repentance. Be careful around parables, ladies and gentlemen. They're not, you know, I've done this before in here, I've done this before in here, but you were taught that parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Nothing could be further from the truth. That is simply false. They are not earthly stories with heavenly meanings. That's not what they are. We don't have time to go into it tonight, but if you want to look, if you want to study it, uh, try Mark 4 in the parable of the four soils. Try that one. And he will tell you in there what the purpose of parables is. And you might not like it, but that's the purpose. That's what the text says. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a difference between what is known as exegesis and isogesis. I do this in my systematics class every time. And I'm telling you, they fall in the trap every time. I'm going to do it one more time. So those of you who've had my systematics class, you can't answer anything. You've got to keep silent. John chapter 3, verse 3 says, Unless you were born again, you cannot blank the kingdom of God. Well, quit that! Uh, um, if you are sitting in your seat, and you're thinking that the, blank, the word in the blank is enter... You are guilty of isogesis. 
Because what you did is impose on that text what you thought it would, sh- what you thought it should say. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say enter, ladies and gentlemen. What does it say? It says see. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. It doesn't say anything about entering it. Not, 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 not in the third verse. My, my point is, ladies and gentlemen, we go to the Bible and we draw out of it. That's exegesis. We don't impose what we think should be true on it. That's isogesis. Um, <clears throat> guys, uh, three quick ones. There is a difference between a parable and law. Or there's a difference between a parable, excuse me, there's a difference in a proverb and a law. There's a difference between a proverb and a law. Let me give you an example. <coughs> of how, I mean, I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, I, I can't tell you how many hours I've spent over 35 years trying to help parents wrestle with this one principle. Here's the text. Train up a, wild, a child in the way he shall go, and when he is old, he shall, not, he shall not depart from it. Where's that found? Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. And I'm telling you, I have had heartbroken parents in my office saying, what happened? What happened? There's a law in Proverbs 22 that told me that my kids should have been great and now they're on drugs. What happened? Ladies and gentlemen, that's to confuse a proverb with a law. That's, a, that's, a, that's an interpretive, hermeneutical mistake that could save you untold pain if you would just observe it. Two more. <clears throat> Oftentimes, i got to do this fast. Um, there is a difference between the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. For instance, Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. Jesus says, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. Now, gentlemen, anybody in here have any trouble with lusting uh, members of the opposite sex? Or am I the only one? Anybody? So has your... Uh, thank you, Howard. Thank you. <laughs> Listen, that guy is 87 years old and he still has problems. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Do any of you younger folk want to? Uh, um, but but guys, um, Howard's got two eyes in his in his head. So do I. Did you think that Jesus wanted you to pluck your eye out? Or is there something behind that? That is, sin is something you should take seriously and, and take whatever drastic measures must, ha- must be taken so that you will not sin with your eyes. Ladies and gentlemen, the difference in... If, if, if you can just keep that in mind, it'll keep you out of all kinds of interpretive difficulties. And here's the last one. Please be careful with predictive prophecy. The book of Daniel, the book of Revelation... You know, I have people say, you know, I'm going to have a Bible study at my home. We're going to, we're going to study the book of Revelation. And I think, <laughs> don't do that. Don't do Revelation. Ladies and gentlemen, I did a singles Bible study years ago. And I, I, I really, I didn't even know what was in the book of Daniel. But I, I announced I was going to do the book of Daniel. Got through the first six chapters and they were great. Daniel in the lion's den, in the fiery furnace. And then you come to chapter 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 and 12. And I was looking at those singles saying, <laughs> I don't know what this says. I don't know what this means. I'm sorry. You know, guys, John Calvin wrote a commentary on every book in the Bible except the book of Revelation.
because he said, I don't understand it. Guys, you can, you can damn John Calvin if you like, but he's a pretty smart boy. He doesn't understand the book, but I find people holding conferences over it and, and, and exposing their charts and predicting what's going to happen at every, at every trumpet blast. Be careful. Just, that's all. Be careful over predictive prophecy. I'll tell you this. You want to learn some hard lessons? Go to the book of Isaiah. And try to figure out what Isaiah means every time when he says, on that day. And then ask yourself, what day is he talking about? When's that going to come? If you want to have some consternation, just try that. So, be careful. Be careful of predictive prophecy. I'm not saying you can't enjoy it. There's a, there's a sense in what I want to say. Um, I, I want you to understand something about the new heavens and the new earth. But too much dogmatism just reveals that you haven't done your homework. If you do your homework, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be so dogmatic about predictive prophecy. Got to quit. We'll come back and finish it up next week. Heavenly Father, I, I pray that you will help us discover better ways to discover who you are, what you've said, what you're like, so that we can conform our lives to you. That, that, is, that is the goal of our sanctification, is to be like Jesus. And so, Father, grant us grace. Grant us new fervor for your word that we might become more like the Son who has died in our place and who is now in union with us. We glory in our union with Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.